and welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are finally going to be discussing Oppenheimer. It's our immediate reactions. It's all just, yeah, this will be a quick uh, immediate reactions thing. We're recording this uh, in a hotel room, so that's probably why the um, audio is kind of weird. Um, so this is the first time we've actually gotten to record in the same room with each other the entire time we've done this. So this is fun. We've gotten to just hang out all day, watch Oppenheimer. We, we did the Barbenheimer double feature. Saw that first. Uh, so I think that, I don't know, we can talk about how that, uh, what that order did to our psyches later, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been been a good day of movies so far and we're about to yeah we can get into our initial thoughts and feelings and emotions about Oppenheimer right now Ooh, well I'm feeling from a cinematic to like the movie standpoint really good it was a fantastic film. yeah 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 <laughs> I feel uh overwhelmed a little bit it was it was a lot of movie in a good way just in terms of like we saw it in IMAX so it was a big screen big speakers big score big everything staring at killian murphy's face like right in front of you two stories high for most of the thing yeah yeah um but yeah man what a i'm still processing it yeah we'll be continuing to do that it's it's definitely one of those i think the first you know we, we took a few minutes to just scribble down any thoughts and notes without looking at anything and the first thing i wrote is it's most definitely a nolan film you could no mistaking it and yeah the, one of the most interesting things to me was finally seeing how he applied the Nolan twists and aesthetic and style to this story. And uh, I think I think it worked. Yeah, it was well. there like like we said, like it, we read the book beforehand and like the book is like 700 pages long. And so I one, I think this is a real big triumph of of adaptation right because like he absolutely the movie's three hours long and i feel like it definitely needed to be three hours long to tell the totality of that story but i like i think he picked all the good stuff and all the most important parts of the book and managed to make it in there while also putting a little bit of a, a nolan spin of his own in there and then like you said with the twist like we all knew what happens we all know like the hearings after the bomb we all know everything else but the way that he presented the it's the way that he structures it and the way that he formats it with everything that is kind of the twist for me really because once i realized what he was doing with Strauss's hearing versus oppenheimer's security clearance hearing that was when it started to fall into place and i was like oh he's gonna end this at the same moment for both men and that's gonna be nuts and like it's not gonna be the bomb exploding for the test the real thing is gonna be like you were saying the the reverberations and the repercussions of everything not just for the world but for the lives of these two people absolutely it's um you know kind of brings to mind one you know I'll, I'll look up what the full quote is for our full episode but i believe tom Schoen was writing about one of nolan's movies in the nolan variations and he said it's not about the explosion it's about the reverberations mm-hmm. and the echoes and what happened after that so yeah so it, uh as i did say before it's i, I was thinking it's not necessarily going to be so focused on the trinity test and that, that it was certainly a centerpiece and an avenue for uh the whole cinematic experience but um the the framing device of the the security hearing and uh the senate confirmation hearing for lois strauss was uh definitely the 
you know, maybe you didn't expect this. And, uh, and it was, it seems weird to say for a three hour movie, but it, it felt really tight. Um, it was oh, edited it so incredibly yeah. well. I thought that um, we were going to have like another maybe 15 minutes and then the yeah. end scene happened. I was like, oh, that was very fast. Yeah. Jennifer, is it Jennifer LeMay? As the, I, you say yeah, name? I think so. Um, you know that or it's it's lame, but we, like, we I don't. Yeah, I'm going to say we're going to say Lemay for now. <laughs> the, we're not good with pronunciations historically. I have not been, but um, the editing yeah, work on this that was the first thing that I noticed too was just the I want to when this comes out on Blu-ray, I want to watch it with the sound off because there were especially moments in the first act where it was just mostly like montage stuff, like. The moment where um, the moment where he poisons the apple and then is racing back and forth to get the apple before his professor eats it, but that's also intercut with a bunch of other stuff. But it, it never you know what's happening. Like the scene where he he uh, he knocks over the beaker and the lab stuff, and then everyone laughs at him. You don't need any of the sound to get what's going on in that scene. And there were so many things where it was almost like Dunkirk, where it was just like right. a pure like guttural image thing combined with like these really really talky scenes uh one of the notes that i made on the book when i read it was that this more than anything proves that america is decided like in rooms with men where they exclude everything else like it's very much a you know room where it happens situation Mm -hmm. for the entire book and i was like how is he gonna make this interesting (laughs) because it's fun to like read all the you know the the backroom dealing and all of the stuff that went on but how do you make it into like a thriller movie right and then you combine all the like the images and the montages and stuff with just these really compelling really uh fast-paced like almost not quite sorkin dialogue but very quick very rapid fire um accompanied by uh goranson's score like especially moments where like i didn't think that that scene is going to be really intense and then like when they're interrogating someone in a boardroom or in a um in the hearing room and then the score just ramps up and i was just like gripping my seat being like what what is he going to say next even though like i know what he's going to say (laughs) exactly yeah yeah and and you can literally feel it too in the imax theater you can feel your seat vibrating you can feel the bass coming in with either with music or with any of the explosion sound effects but um yeah that but the way it was structured since i was thinking strictly in terms of history you know with especially with what it did with lewis strauss and his story um the way it was structured uh well had a lot of prestige vibes to me it felt more oh, like the prestige yes, than any other yes, movie like yeah. you talked about before if you like the prestige you will love this movie uh yeah yeah and and the way to keep some of that tension of well who's the real villain here and it it has the question of well who gave all these people you know who gave there's a, literally a, a person named borden and it was his name in real life um, so who gave yeah. borden this information <laughs> yeah. to write this report to the fbi when this guy was a former senate aide and he didn't have clearance anymore what who gave that and uh so it, that makes nolan's quote um that we read about from the la times interview i believe or the or the wired interview of one the of people those, yeah. who know the least about the history are going to get the most from it, at least on the yeah, initial viewing. Yeah. Because then, if you've read the book, you know that Louis Strauss is the big evil supervillain bad guy who ruins Oppenheimer, and it tells the story chronologically, more or less. But how do you do that? How do you translate that to film? How do you keep that tension for something that's really, it's a very bureaucratic movie? <laughs> There's yeah. so much bureaucracy in this. And 
the I think the question was answered so well, and it's by it, with everything we've been seeing about Nolan this whole time. It's you withhold that information, you're playing fair with the audience. We we saw it so many times of like these are the people in the room, but by where you position the camera, oh, uh, as where a it filmmaker, starts to go back to different scenes. Oh, I love exactly. That. Like it was very much like a very much like Prestige again, Prestige or yeah. like a heist movie where you think something is happening in one moment, but really that was the plan all along and something like that. But then also the. Um, I want to know your thoughts on the color versus black and white sections because we went into this knowing that color was going to be Oppenheimer's perspective and his first person, like very, very subjective point of view. But then the black and white, which focuses mostly on Strauss, is going to be the objective, like third eye omniscient thing. Uh, But then there were some moments in the black and white portion where I was like, this does not feel objective especially in the moments right. when Strauss was like well I don't know who could have given him that file and I'm like I know it was you <laughs> like exactly I know what happened and then it doesn't reveal that until it's finally in the end and then that all started to click to where it was going but it does kind of it I feel like we knew more about it going in with the way that it was shot and everything but for a regular person who doesn't know that I feel like they would be more uh not confused, but maybe more just like kind of wondering again, like, yeah, who's the true hero? Who's the villain of this story with and who's telling that story versus, you know, what the way that it was shot and everything. Right. I think that that for me, it worked most powerfully when you saw the juxtaposition of here's this color scene showing what Oppenheimer mm-hmm. went like the, saw. the dinner scene, not the yes. dinner, but like the that meeting at the dinner table. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and it and then seeing what you know, Strauss Strauss is a point of view or a more objective point of view when they did the black and white. Uh, it, and it was useful enough when we did cut back to some of those scenes where they were both in the room and you could see, okay, um, like I know whose perspective I'm getting here. So it, it was a nice, helpful thing, but the the best utility I think it had, I mean, especially with how it ended with Strauss's fixation on the very early scene of him seeing yeah. Oppenheimer and Einstein speaking from a distance and then having it finish at the end that's the scene we see but we finally see it from Oppenheimer's point of view yeah. and that's the big uh, like no one mentioned like the inception moment where you can see what they actually said and you know it exploits Strauss's paranoia but it also reveals the ultimate uh, thing about Oppenheimer about what he really thinks of it all yeah. and answering that question that Edward Teller asked him several times throughout the movie like what do you like, really what do believe, you believe? And I also think it's interesting because he said, Nolan has said in the past that the ending to this is very much like Inception. Uh, and so now knowing what we know about the perspective of who is whose mind we're in at any given moment of the movie, whether or not that exchange actually happened in real life and whether or not um, you know, Einstein actually said those things to Oppenheimer that's what the truth of his feeling about it is in that moment and so that much like the you know whether the top is spinning or whether it's not um the truth is real for that character in that moment so that's how it ends because i did think that that line was a little bit didactic where he's like oh i think we did change the world or whatever i'm like okay is that what we're gonna end on but then knowing that that's how he chooses to kind of the whole time i i feel like uh in the WTF interview with Killian Murphy, I think the phrase he used uh, to Mark Marin to describe his character was he's kind of dancing in the raindrops of everything about 
what he actually believes and who he believes depending on who he's around, which is very historically accurate. Um, and so, yeah, once we get to that end point where he says that, I think that is what he truly thinks, but I also think that's what he wishes that was said to him at some point in time. Maybe like, maybe that conversation was real. Maybe it's not, but I do think that right. it ends on like a pure, like regretful moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It gets the, the feeling right. And it's, I think it's fascinating that it's not, it's Oppenheimer saying it and no one being adamant that he's like, I'm not going to tell people what to think. Yeah. And I, I read from that point of view, uh, discussing the movie I think Nolan did a really excellent job and it, uh, and with what Robert Downey Jr. was talking about uh, in press interviews ahead of this saying like maybe you'll find a little sympathy for Louis Strauss and I, I didn't really feel that personally knowing everything I know but I can I was able to see how Nolan in some ways sometimes made the case you know almost got us to sway over oh, to the yeah. side of Roger Robb interrogating him especially right near you know, in the in like the the climax of the security hearings, where uh, he's really grilling Oppenheimer, and so not not really playing a both sides kind of view, but trying to, as we talked before, like shift that point of view. And you know, with the quote from talking to Tom Show, he's talking about Psycho, and you see mm, you're you're yeah, implicit yeah. in this moment because you know the shower curtain scene, like you're the one. You're the one doing it, doing the and you're yeah. complicit. And then you're, um, you know, once you realize it's um, it's it's Bateman who does it, you're like, oh wait, and, you know. Actually, we see that his reaction, and then you realize that later on in the movie it's him. You know, with this, you know, you can see a little bit. It, it gets you on that side, and for at least for me, in flashes and moments, and trying to shift that, and you know, reasonably see like, well, you know, Oppenheimer, you blood the creation of this bomb and now how could you go back and say no you know we're not gonna right. should be if no all you're looking at is transcripts and everything else in front of you yeah exactly yeah because you don't have that inner life that you've been that we the audience have been watching for three hours of this of the stuff that's going on in his head uh speaking of that hearing scene towards the end like at first i was like is emily blunt gonna have a whole lot of good scenes in this i don't know what's happening and that scene in the end where she is just adamantly responding to every question that is thrown at her like it's a very it's a quick scene but it's very intense and she was everything else that she the scene where she's comforting i don't know if comforting is the right word but like telling him to like you know get over himself about uh gene's suicide um all, a lot of very good very good performances from her but that interrogation scene at the end was great and i thought that the moment in um throughout for like the first like act i think you see her in the background but she's blurred in the camera because the focus is on oppenheimer being interrogated but then that moment where that just i feel like that was just like a very like the the sex scene where it's it's he's feeling vulnerable and naked in front of them because they're bringing up his past infidelities with gene in front of his wife and so it feels like you know like feels like he's getting fucked in front of the in front of a, a group of people asking them questions and then it yeah. actually does turn into like Florence Pugh is there and she like makes icon and then that's when the camera finally like brings Emily Blunt into focus with like this, this look of horror on her face like that was like I don't know maybe the most like horrific Christopher Nolan image that I've seen since like Memento maybe like it was like I, I had like a visceral reaction I was like oh God. like that's awful I wanted to it's just 
you know, dissolve into the seat because yeah. it was so uncomfortable. Yeah. And I can only imagine like, how awkward it must have been to shoot that. It works for the it works for the scene. Like I immediately knew where they were going for it and why they did it and everything. And I saw some tweet that was like, Oppenheimer has a sex scene only that Nolan can shoot. And I'm like, what does that even mean? But, and then now I see it and I was like, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, all right. Yep. <laughs> um, like it's just full of regret and everything. Uh, but that scene I felt like was just the looks on her face and the looks on Killian Murphy's face were just... Also, this movie is like it's IMAX and it's mostly close-ups of Killian Murphy's face. Like his his baby blues are like the star of the show here, and everything that he's he paints on his face for that whole the whole runtime is he carries the movie for real. Like I hope that this leads to a lot of um, more movie star leading roles for him, not just on like Netflix sure. or TV shows, yeah. but he hopefully he can get more leading roles because he is amazing in this movie. I feel like people throw around Oscar worthy, but uh, this is definitely an Oscar worthy performance. Um, whether it wins, you know, whatever we, you know, there are so many amazing performances every year, but this should easily be in the conversation. This also should, the more than anything, I think this movie makes the argument for a best ensemble cast Oscar. Like if the Golden Globes are going to go downhill, like they need to move that category and put it in the Oscars. Because this thing, there's, I've joked before that it's like got every white man in Hollywood from like the age of 20 onward. But, like, there's some people that show up for, like... Like, Gary Oldman is in this as Truman for maybe two minutes, tops. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, really high high build. But it's, like, every couple seconds, like, oh, there's another famous guy. There's another famous guy. There's Jack Quaid playing the bongos. Like, there's another person. <laughs> right. And so, like, just an amazing cast of, of people who are were willing to be in a movie for, like, maybe five minutes, tops. And just because it got meant that they got to work with everyone involved. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like yeah, that you brought up uh, Kitty because, uh, yeah, that scene where she was uh, being questioned in the hearing was, you know, I think Nolan did incredible justice to Kitty's character. And, yes, yeah, I thought uh, so too. And maybe that might be the example of like the adaptation, out of many things we could grab as examples of how excellent this adaptation was, but since you don't have words to paint the picture on a page, the way he painted the picture of her in the movie, you know, for a lot of it, it was, I mean, either one, she was calling out beyond his bullshit. Yeah. Or yeah. two, you saw her struggling as a mother, um, and that, you know, seemingly disconnected, seemingly mm-hmm. an alcoholic. Um, but then she does a lot with, with not a lot of dialogue. Yes. Say all that too. And yeah. when you see her tie it all together there with that composure in the hearing, and yeah. uh, as I talked about on our last episode of that contrast to Oppenheimer being shaken and, you know, seemingly just like letting them run roughshod over him. Because I was an idiot scene. Because I was an idiot yeah. and and everything, mm-hmm. just not being up to that moment and then seeing how Kitty handled it and just that contrast in the two characters. And that's the moment where you can see why... Oppie loved her so much and stayed with her because just before that scene, uh, his uh, his lawyer Garrison implies like, "What? Like, are we sure we should even like, have her talk?" Yeah. And he said, "You know, only a, only a fool or an adolescent would presume to know the particulars of a relationship, and I don't think you're either." Yeah. And um, like, yeah, that was just 
I think I, I was very, uh, very taken and very absorbed by Emily Blunt's performance. Uh, again, in a movie full of incredible performances, but um, I mean, besides Killian Murphy, which goes without saying, yeah. I think hers perhaps stood out the most to me since I'm just gabbing on and on about it. <laughs> I also, I did think Florence Pugh did really well with, with yes. the short amount of time that she was given, like all of the like I wrote about this before, maybe I can link to the show notes, but all the people getting mad about like the age gap thing with her, like that's not the focus of the thing at all. It's mostly just about how he, um, it frames her death as one of the first deaths that he feels responsible for in his life. And then that's just magnified over and over once it finally gets to how he feels about developing the bomb for real. But it could be very easy to just turn her character into like, oh, this is why the main character feels this way. Like it, like almost type a kind of fridging for the character. Like she right. only exists to develop his anguish or develop his problems or whatever. But she's very much a um, a, a person in her own right from the the first couple scenes. And really, not a lot of people get like. I feel like back to the ensemble thing. Everyone is able to fully realize who they are, even though you don't really know their names for a lot of the people like you can recognize oh this person's motivation is this or this person feels this way about this person because of x and they all do that with like you know maybe a couple minutes of screen time um yeah so i thought she was really well represented here uh, i did a good job um the performance i really the the surprise mvps for me were david Krumholtz as robbie yes um I, the more I read the book, the more I was looking forward to how he was gonna do that because he he has so many. He's such a rich character and he's got a lot of good quotes uh, in the book. Yes. Um, and then Josh Hartnett. Uh, right. Yes. Like, what he needs to be back in the movies. Put this man like on everything. Like he's he's great. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I I saw his name on the cast list once I started looking up things for this movie whenever ago, and I thought, what was the last thing I saw him in? And I think the last thing I actually watched with Josh Hartnett was 20 years ago. I, I think I saw Pearl Harbor in the theater, and he was there wooing Kate Beckinsale. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, very, very much younger Josh Hartnett, and then I never saw him myself in anything. I know he's done plenty of stuff. Uh, since then uh, and did a few more movies afterward uh, but you know it's so from my experience it's almost like he came out of nowhere to do this and um again with that limited screen time it captured the character the personality of Lawrence so well mm-hmm. yeah I thought it was a funny joke where they mentioned something about he just walked off frame and then someone mentioned oh it's not that it's the faculty and I thought that was funny because that was a, the name of a teen horror movie that he was in and like the 90s after screen oh, became yeah. a big thing and i was like that's not on purpose but that was just a funny connection um other scattered stuff that i've got um i think more so than the book this really does paint the picture of oppenheimer as more of a a great persuasive leader and delegator and manager than as a great discoverer great scientist or anything because he was very good at figuring out what one person was good at and what another person was good at and finding how to combine those two things or how to combine two people who might not like each other but are still looking for the same goals um and tried to and it very much showed that and it even had like a lot of people doubting him in the movie just like in the book where it was like uh you know like uh 
uh, what was the the prophet has to always be right. Like a prophet can't be wrong. Like you've right. got to be, uh, you, you've got to be on all the time. Um, and very much interrogated the because everyone around him is calling him like a great man and a genius and brilliant and everything, and the words are saying one thing, and then you see the stuff at the beginning with his practical chemistry and like the actual stuff where he's much more interested in the theory of something than the application of it and then with all the rest of the actions you see like okay well i think at one point it was groves that was like yeah they told me you're a dilettante a womanizer uh borderline alcoholic like you don't you can't manage a hamburger stand like all this other stuff and so it lays all that out there and you see the actions juxtapose the the words of a lot of people in a lot of ways too and so but um the the biography does get a little bit more into like the papers he wrote and the theories he professed and everything um but this i think does a really good job of painting a picture of like maybe someone else might have come along that could have done what he did but i don't think there could have been someone else who could have delegated as much on that project and like just had a sheer force of will to make something happen um other than that, like there were a lot of scenes that got that point across. I feel like, right, right. Um, other things that I wrote down was uh, there actually might have been a couple of points where, uh, bear with me on this. I may have felt a little underwhelmed, or say the moment I realized what the movie was doing with the the framing device of the, the both hearings for Oppenheimer mm-hmm. and Strauss, and I realized, oh, so yeah, they're gonna reveal uh, if you if you read the full american prometheus book and you even know the history then you're like okay yeah we know strauss was pulling the strings behind the scenes but then i realized that is the perfect way to do things when you have to do this and deliver that information as i mentioned yeah. just a little while ago and then perhaps i was uh talking about the trinity explosion uh it looked great but maybe Maybe I felt in the moment a little underwhelmed by it. Not necessarily because I, I did know that, you know, we'd see the light and it would take a while for the sound. That's yeah. that's not necessarily what it was. I kept waiting. I was wondering what was going to happen. Warning when they would yeah. come in. Yeah. Um, and so maybe I just built it up too much for myself. And maybe when the sound did roll in, I was uh, I still have the, the memory fresh of seeing Interstellar in that same IMAX theater a few months ago. And... Uh, maybe I was just going to be like, Does it want, I want to be rattled as much as the the launch scene in Interstellar rattled the seats. And that didn't happen. So maybe it was just, I need to uh, take those expectations away. But um, that said, you know, I think, you know, when I had a little bit of moments to think about it and really look at like, oh yeah, like, I don't know what I was expecting with the test, but it didn't, it didn't turn it into, uh, I could say this, uh, military porn or any you know thing like that it's not yeah, focusing it on the pure a, destructive power of this yeah and in the scenes where uh you know philip morrison is giving his presentation on his trip to hiroshima and showing what yes. it, we don't yeah. see any photos of the victims no. or anything it does it's not any kind of misery porn or um you know those images can be powerful but that's not the focus of the movie and it shows it's so it's focused on killing murphy's face the whole time because the focus of this movie is not this bomb we it, i think the film takes for granted yes we all know nuclear weapons are explosive and dangerous yeah. and powerful and 
uh, I mean, like it, of course, shows the power of them, mm-hmm. but it smartly keeps the focus, like that one scene on Oppenheimer in this character study and what it does with him. So when I started to realize that, I was like, okay, you know, I, number one, maybe I, I was, just, you know, expectations, whatever, about this thing, um, and two, that's not really the point of the movie. It, it was it built to that again and had that moment, but what we're really there for is how did Oppenheimer see this and what did it do to him? So the, the more powerful scene for me was seeing his speech in the wake of that. the Hiroshima news mm-hmm. and uh, how that scene was done. Absolutely. That was, uh, you know, impactful, amazing. devastating, amazing. Because yes. he, like I said earlier, like way when we first started this, like, I wonder when he's going to do a horror film. And this was it for that. Like the second, the scream, the one isolated scream happened because there yes. wouldn't have been time to scream more because you look up and the bombs coming and then it happens. Um, it, it, the piercing scream rattling through his brain and then starts to see random people in the crowd weeping, holding their children, crying, faces melted off. He's standing in ash. Like it's a terrible, terrible thing. Um, and I felt like the marketing of the movie really like, because that scene, if I remember the first trailer correct, or maybe it was the second, if I remember that correctly, it's the cheers and the stomps and he's standing in the gym about to speak and then it cuts to him you know raising his hat by the flag and everyone's almost like putting him on their arms right. kind of thing yeah. so you could have easily been like oh this is gonna be like hell yeah we dropped that bomb but no like <laughs> completely the opposite like everyone who's worried about this movie glorifying anything that happened I think is uh, sorely mistaken and I don't know if you heard me when in the scene where they're talking about where to actually drop the bomb when James Remar is like we've got 12 sites listed and then he goes actually no 11 uh, I'm keeping Kyoto or I'm taking Kyoto off of the list because of its importance to Japanese history and also me and my wife honeymooned there and I was just like Jesus like <laughs> the it's that quick it's that to decide like it's that you know like just mm. how these things were decided and it just it, i also thought that there were just a lot of horrific imagery like the in the scene with truman where um Oppenheimer first goes in and is like i think we need to you know start to figure out what the russians know and we start we need to talk more about it and have, start he starts introducing the principle of candor and the the laughter and the unease of that whole scene between Truman and his aide and the way it just lingers on their faces a little bit and just they're kind of like like because clearly they're proud of what they did um but it just like lingers on their on their faces and their laughter for everything and just you feel the unease it's just an extension of the gym speech really where it it lingers on all that and I was like that's an image from you know any horror movie the last couple of years yeah yeah that gym speech i think is maybe if you need a central thesis of the movie that is it because oppenheimer is giving this victory speech essentially which he did give in real life yeah yeah and then um you know then the dramatic license of it is no one showing us what was going on in his head and the juxtaposition of those two things is incredibly powerful and can i think it could be like the uh the locus of trying to think about 
pulling those two ideas in your head at mm-hmm. one time mm-hmm. by putting those two things right up against each other. All right. What other notes were we able to take in those few few minutes we gave um, ourselves? The only other thing that I had, the only, I'm trying to think of like any quibbles that I may have had with it. And I felt, I kind of felt like that quote with Einstein was didactic in the moment, like I said, but at the end, at the end. Yeah. Once you finally realize what he said or not, not Einstein's quote, but Oppenheimer's response right, to it. Right. Um, but then once I thought about it and realized the the perspective that we're seeing, it makes a little more sense. The only other big thing that I, I thought was kind of iffy was the first time he says that I've become death destroyer world is right after he has sex with Florence Bieber the first time. And she's like, right. read this Sanskrit for me. And I was like, that you're shoehorning that in. You can yes. wait to you can wait for him to say that quote later. Right. Um, but we don't need any. We really didn't need any reminding. And then it yeah. happens again when we're still just seeing the light of the Trinity test before the sound comes in. Yeah. And e- even there, even if you take the other part out, the, the scene with Gene Tatlock, I, I was like, meh, you know, do, I, do that, I feel like that's talking about like what people know about Oppenheimer. That is, I feel like is the, if you, if you did a, some, some polling, that might be the biggest the thing people thing can tell people you. Know. So yeah. maybe he was pushing a bit too hard there and I kind of felt it, but yeah. I'll take the time to process that. Um, but but I agree with you. Yeah. yeah, a couple of the quotes a little bit. And then they found a way to shoehorn the the title of the biography. I wanted like, to point at the boy. screen. I was like, he said it. He did it. Like Leo DiCaprio. Dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Other than that, though, I know, what was your favorite little like small moment or like grace note in the thing? Because for me, it was Jack Quaid playing the bongos in half of his scenes. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, and then just the 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 scene that calls back to Robbie's first meeting of him where he he makes him eat something yes. on the train and then mm-hmm. when he's trying to make him eat like an orange slice on the uh while he's he's in the middle of his hearing I thought that was really nice just David Crumholtz just since day one Bernard the elf man oh great, yeah great man <laughs> like oh <laughs> uh, yeah yeah um I mean there I mean there's certainly moments um the same thing stick out in my head right away um yeah, here and there, they're just little things from the book. Uh, maybe just spitting what I out what I remember. I'll stumble upon one. There was, like you said, the apple and putting the mm-hmm. the poison in it, uh, and even that is possibly an apocryphal story. Um, whether he actually did that or not, or he said he did. Um, the I know people talked about you know him actually dipping the martini glasses in his trademark mixture oh, of yeah, uh, lime yeah, yeah. and honey, I believe. Um, uh, I'm sure once we cut this off, I'm going to be like, oh, this no, this moment is what, but, but yeah, in terms of the little things, the little details where we talked about, you got all the broad strokes right, but there were enough little details in there that, you know, you could have left them out and it wouldn't have mattered. There were plenty in there that I really appreciated having read it and that just, yeah, like the balancing those out and making sure they all work together. Yeah, I think it was done really well. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the, we tried to limit our conversation right after the movie ended because yeah. we knew we were doing this. But one of the things you said as we walked out was like, oh, man, I can't wait to read the script of this. Oh, man. Yeah, Which I'm sure they'll the, release it. The first person sections. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to read this script because uh, so well structured. Uh, so uh, giving giving each character the time they need and in the time they have giving us the essence of it and the feelings for each of the characters that we see. Uh, 
you know goes hand in hand with the performers you get so i just yeah, i'd love to to read it and see how it was done on the page and um just yeah i, I think to, to sum it up yes the whole coalescence of all the parts that needed to make this happen to be what it is um it's one of the best historical dramas or at least adaptations that i've ever seen he gets all the facts there like with anything with this there's dramatic license of course yeah but yeah. i think it's never done in, in maybe for lack of a better word exploitative way or mm-hmm. just for shock value or anything uh, like right, just right, talking right. about some of the nuclear stuff earlier it's like it's, none of it's for shock value it's it's there and it's done the way it needs to be but i think it was maybe one of, maybe not the perfect way because who who knows how many other ways you could do a story like this but it was I think the perfect way that Nolan could have done it and uh, just think just so well done. Um, and it just tells a story. I think you can watch this movie and get the, the feeling of, you know, the reading that huge book and uh, I'm feeling very satisfied with, with that aspect of it. And in terms of, you know, thinking about the issues it presents and trying to, trying to process things like Oppenheimer did, I'm going to have to be sitting with that for, for a while to to really start really thinking about how I feel. But no. It's it's a it's pure Nolan. We got it again. It Maybe I still think Tenet is like him at his just like base everything, like the id. The, the most Nolan id trademark uh, and everything. Certainly. This this comes very close. I also weirdly this is funny. Like there were a lot of, please. there were a <laughs> lot of one-liners there were a lot of uh just aside quips and jokes that um exist solely to just break the tension like in the hearing scenes there's some like one-offs that are like not hilariously funny but just like it's it, they're either ironic or just kind of like glib gallows humor um yeah. even the line about um that I was talking about earlier where I was like, I oh, mean, I really don't like that they made the, the zero probability would be nice line as a joke note in the trailer. I was like, you're talking about a bomb that's going to kill thousands of people. I don't really think that's a good joke, but the, in context of the movie, they're talking about the, the theory that they had at first where they were scared that once they pulled the trigger on it, it was going to ignite the entire atmosphere. And then the whole world was going to go up in flames and not just what they were targeting. Um, and that's actually what they're discussing, which still is not great, but like at least it was a theory that they thought up and then they learned that it was disproved. <laughs> but yeah. like they're and in the context of the movie, they're just trying to he's making a joke before they do the Trinity test to kind of cut any tension that's happening with him and Groves. Right. Because it was an incredibly tense yeah. time leading up to that in the yeah. hours. But they're the moments with uh I'm trying to think. Like the Alden Ehrenreich with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Like, there's some like you know snappy one-liners there that you know maybe not like ha ha ha, but they're just they're smug and like made me smile. And I heard some other people chuckle mm-hmm. and some other stuff mm-hmm. in the theater too, which yeah. which was nice. And I, I will say like we did Barbie earlier today and uh, Oppenheimer in the afternoon, and the feeling of just hearing people chatter about stuff after the theater or after the movie and hearing people talk in the lobby about things just warms my warms my heart and i heard that both times today it was great absolutely 
yeah, I think we'll talk more about some of our Barbie thoughts next time. But this was uh, an Oppenheimer focus. Short thoughts is it's good. Go see both of these. They're Absolutely, right. definitely see both of them. <laughs> uh, they're they're both great. So uh, I guess we'll wrap it there. In the meantime, where can people find us, Jake? Right uh, off the cuff. Uh, let me find the. Document. Can you remember all the time? Uh, we don't have our our usual uh, outline up, so I'm just putting you on the spot. <laughs> One minute. We can edit it. Don't worry. I think we're gonna go with the raw audio for this one. So perfect. I'll, I'll fill the space until yeah. you get your your note up. Let's see here. I'm almost there. It's okay. There you go. The social handles. Yeah. Uh, you, that is friends at dusk pod on Instagram uh, and Threads now. We haven't posted on Threads, but we might for this one. Uh, and at friends at dusk on Twitter. Our email is friends at dustpot at gmail.com and then my stuff uh is always at jake harris four on instagram and twitter letterboxd is at 808 jake underscore and what about you all right i can't quite see your screen so i'm going to say on instagram at marshall.doig on twitter at marshall doig and on letterboxd at m doig perfect all right <laughs> <laughs> uh building up my arrogance just like <laughs> Uh, again, please like and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. That helps us a lot. Uh, if you want to, you can support us through our Spotify podcast page. Um, and we will include uh, our resources and everything in the show notes uh, here. And uh, that'll do it for us uh, right now. And we will see you next time where we do... Uh, a full recap with some more in-depth thoughts about this and Barbie and the whole project as a whole and some Christopher Nolan rankings and a whole bunch of other fun stuff uh, for the next episode after this. Episode or two. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. See, you know, see do some the, wrap up. Where the wind takes us to wrap all of it up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. But we need to wrap this thing up. So yes. yeah. a quick reaction is uh, gone beyond the bounds of our expectations, I think. Yeah. Just, uh, just like the nuclear age that we were brought into so long ago so hello in the meantime uh, <laughs> yes thank you for listening everyone and we'll see you next time bye